Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Ether is the perfect drug for Las Vegas. In this town, they love a drunk. Fresh meat. Come on, boy. So they put us through the turnstiles and turned us loose inside. Hello, and welcome to Dose of Ether. This week on show number six, we're going to be talking about Cartesi and TrueBit and their layer two off-chain consensus mechanisms. We're going to talk about Solid and from Tim Berners-Lee, the founder of The Web. Uh, we're going to talk about how that relates to other decentralized projects. MetaMask is now compatible with Ledger, and another huge improvement with MetaMask is EIP-712, which will, will bring much improved user experience and user protection in the browser for Web3. Lucian, how's it going? I'm doing well, and yourself? Excellent. It's actually getting a little bit cooler here in Santa Monica, but we can't, we're not allowed to complain about the weather. Um, let's get into it. Uh, this Cartesi white paper that they just released is awesome. I loved it. Uh, and I, I love the developments in layer two tech. We've talked a lot recently about state channels and, and you know, plasma chains and loom and, and all the, the cool stuff that's going on there. But these guys are taking a, a little bit of a different approach. Yeah, it seems like it is a much more open-ended um, layer two solution in terms of the possibilities that you could do it. Their goal is to be able to basically run a Linux, um, full Linux distribution in a virtual environment on a layer two solution with uh, deterministic computation. Is that correct? Yeah, and the, the way that it works is they're, they're trying to wrap an entire Linux dev environment into a blockchain virtual machine and then do most of the computation off-chain. So like most Layer 2 technologies, it's trying to use Layer 1 as a settlement layer, and, and in this case, Cartesi, like Truebit, are using Ethereum as their base uh, layer for finality and uh, local consensus or, or, or uh, resolving disputes. Um, and... What they're trying to do is make it possible for developers to run familiar uh, development environments uh, and build applications as they normally would, but then just define uh, different business logic as either native or reproducible. And what the, the goal of that is, is to pretty much take all of the important business logic that might affect customer money or user data or things like that and wrap them into a reproducible computation virtual machine. And these are run inside these Cartesi machines that are controlled by a Cartesi node. And what this means is that now the user and the centralized operator can um, do the computation themselves on their own nodes. But if there is a dispute, they can outsource that dispute resolution to the blockchain. So because the, the most of the logic that's important is reproducible, that means that it can be it can be run on any arbitrary node running the software. It means that it keeps the participants honest. So if the centralized provider who's running their node and is doing transactions on behalf of the user, if they screw up, well, now the user is able to reproduce those transactions and figure out if the the, the operator has um, done something fishy. And if they if they do discover something an issue with how the operator was behaving 
they can go to the blockchain and say, yo, this guy, this guy is trying to screw me over, punish him or let me get my money back. Uh, and, and that's a huge um, improvement when it comes to scalability, uh, because now a central, uh, 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 an application can be decentralized, but run on a single computer or the customer's computer uh, as a pair. And, and you don't get the, the, the need for thousands of nodes to run everybody's application code. Um, unless the um, specific transaction is being contested, in which case you kind of want it to be, uh, you want to be able to replay it so that you could actually have a settlement layer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And that's why these tools are connecting to the base Ethereum chain, which makes a lot of sense over, you know, I know how, how much you love um, private blockchains uh, and consortium blockchains. So I think maybe this is this is a way for, for them to, to be able to do that with the layer one security that you're so in love with. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it'd be ideal to have um, a setup like this work. I think it's a very ambitious project for sure. And uh, another aspect that they're throwing into the mix is that they actually want to build this off of a risk V architecture so that they don't have to rely on, um, is it the uh, ARM86 architecture or, damn. Anyways. Yeah, I mean, mobile, mobile would be ARM and then you have X8, X86 and, uh, for, for um, desktop machines. Got it. Yeah. And um, from what I was hearing that these instruction sets have uh, have been around since something like the 70s. And um, rather than kind of refining it or improving upon it, they've just been adding more and more. So mm -hmm. like it's as if they're trying to make an improvement even on the chipset that they're running these computations on. And it's kind of interesting how... Um, advancements in open source technology even in this case open source hardware design um, is being incorporated into this blockchain movement and, and we see that with uh, ai as well and and machine learning right you have nvidia and apple and google and these guys are, are building custom chips to do uh real-time kind of running of of uh, machine learning algorithms and and things like that and so, and ASICs as well, those are specialized hardware for that purpose. So as long as these um, types or types of computations can benefit from specialized hardware and to the extent that these applications are valuable to users, it's kind of natural that we would see that kind of hardware development, but it's cool to see for sure. And I, I think um, Cartesi is clearly taking a, a, a a very research and academic approach to this, I think, by, by making uh, by thinking from first principles about what are what are some of the fundamental design decisions that we think are important, and they've prioritized development ease and um, and also not requiring a, a really complex incentive layer. So whereas Truebit they made a, a design decision as a fundamental part of their um, system to make sure that nodes were behaving honestly, even if there wasn't an issue. And the way that they do this is by uh, by giving nodes a, um, a token reward uh, for validating, you know, much like any other system, for validating the work that's done. Um, but to make because but to make sure that the um, 
the validators are actually doing their job, the Cartesi or the TrueBit protocol injects fake results. They know that the, the protocol purposefully injects fake results and has the validators prove that they're actually checking the work. Right. And this is an efficiency is a fundamental design decision. But with Cartesi, conversely, they perform off-chain computations that are endorsed by a smart contract. And, and this, what this flips is it says, no, the, the blockchain is not responsible for, for figuring out if there's a, an issue with your transaction and somebody is behaving badly. The purpose of the blockchain is to, ver is to verify and adjudicate those issues when they arise. And so it says it's kind of like a normal contract between two people. The government's not going to get involved and have a trial if nobody's having a dispute. And so TrueBit tries to resolve the disputes before there are any, whereas, True, whereas Cartesi is saying only when there is a dispute will we get involved. And that saves a ton of efficiency uh, and, and creates a ton of efficiency improvements. Uh, and there's no need for that incentive layer to make sure that people are behaving honestly. Yeah, I think the Ethereum analogy would be counterfactual instantiation of state channels. Hmm. Um, and just like um, in that case, they're essentially made so that um, only if there is a dispute do you actually um, put the signatures that already exist onto the blockchain, um, but you have all of the signatures on either side of the transaction in order to um, put it on the blockchain. So it's as if like the threat of being able to uh, settle on chain should be enough to keep the um, people involved honest. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I love, because what's cool about Web3 is that it's making business owners rethink incentives and, and to think about them as a base foundational part of their application. Right. The, the Web2, these companies were building end user value as their primary concern. But in blockchain, because you're dealing with a token economy that's inherently linked to the value of the network and the, and the product that you're offering, you have to think through how the incentives will generate organic growth of your network. And if you don't think those things through, you're going to end up with a failed platform and a zero dollar market cap. But in the traditional web world, if you didn't think those through, you ended up with a monopoly and it didn't matter. And you could exploit users all day and they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't leave your platform because you have lock-in. So it just fundamentally rethinks how a business should be designed. And Cartesi is clearly thinking along those lines um, yeah. with their development of the platform. There's, this plays along the concept of provable um, security in some way. And... Um, I could imagine a project like this uh, put in front of a Bitcoin maximalist and from their arguments that they have against Ethereum, I think the first thing that they would say is that the instruction set is so large that the attack surface is undefendable, essentially. Like you can't have provable security um, in a system like this. And for Ethereum, it was enough for them to have uh, for loops and recursion to basically create this explosion, uh, explosion in computational complexity that makes it really difficult to have uh, provably secure smart contracts. And I can't imagine how much bigger the attack surface of Cartesi would be. Um, 
because an operating system has so many vulnerabilities and is traditionally the uh, these operating system uh, system level vulnerabilities is uh, normally an like a very good attack vector for hackers, right? Mm. The interesting thing is that now that um, Linux has been open sourced and developed upon for so long, it's almost taken for granted how many hours of uh, security researchers and um, academics, as well as businesses that have the interest of maintaining the security of this operating system have gone into securing the distribution. But an operating system is always going to have some kind of vulnerability just because of the complexity of it and you'll never say that okay this linux distribution is it from now on it's safe (laughs) yeah i mean i i don't know it's i'm kind of out of my element when it comes to being able to argue the technical aspects of this but i would suspect that the attack surface is limited because it's running in a vm that is controlled from outside influence right because the developers of these applications have to define which computations are reproducible and and put into that VM. And I don't believe that should be able to be modified once it's defined and executed um, because the customers should be able to verify that it's running as expected. Now, if there's a vulnerability in the, in the, the code or the system that is generating or, or, or you know, compiling that, I, I'm not really sure how that comes into play. And I'm not sure if users can inspect how that computation is running. I suspect so. If every node can run the computation, maybe there's ways to detect if, if uh, to understand if there are vulnerabilities. Um, but but you're but definitely it sounds on on paper like it would increase the attack service dramatically. For sure, um, yeah. But I, I you know it's just a white paper at this point. Um, so I guess we'll we'll have to see. I'm also, so let's move on. Yeah. yeah I'm yeah, also let's, very let's, interested yeah. to see how. Um, how this kind of changes the way people think about blockchain because they're basically changing like the the scope and the goal right mm-hmm. it's secure computing in general as opposed to just an internet of money or value exchange or digital scarcity uh, it's definitely broadening the actual definition of what they're trying to accomplish with blockchain yeah and it actually enables hopefully consumer level applications that people are used to um, in in the Web3 kind of frame. So thinking about that more as well, you know, Tim Berners-Lee and MIT Sloan, they are working on this project called Solid, which is taking the original ideas of the web that are flawed fundamentally in in the view of the creator of the World Wide Web. Um, or, or, and who is at least credited with that. And what Tim Berners-Lee is saying is uh, we want privacy and we want control for users around their data. And we want to build a new internet that services that goal. Uh, it's not clear how they're doing it. I'm not sure if there's any um, blockchain technology involved here. But it looks like they're they're trying to solve some of these structural problems that Web three is also trying or that we're trying to solve with blockchain technology. Agreed. Yeah, and um, I could be wrong on this because I I should probably have checked before. But I think uh, Tim Berners Lee um, basically standardized the uh, HTTP communication standard. 
um, that basically underlies every single web application. So he basically developed the standard for the first internet web pages. Um, and what he's proposing is an update to the standards to put consumer privacy first and at the same time um, not to create little silos of data so that if someone does want to opt out of um, the monolithic tech companies like Google or Facebook they won't be separated from their friends and I think that is a really important aspect right people have Facebook because it connects them to other people on Facebook but their idea is that, well, the data you put on Facebook is yours and you should be able to take it with you and you shouldn't lose all of your rights as soon as you post something. And I feel like this move is very um, philosophically motivated, but in the end, it is just a standard of new protocols um, on how to allow users to have more control over their digital identity and uh, where their data resides. Yeah, and let's unpack this and compare it to the projects that we know that are trying to solve similar projects or problems like Blockstack and IPFS and so on. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it looks like Solid, they're trying as much as possible to align with the W3C standards and protocols that already exist and already underlie the web. Um, but what they're doing and their, their main kind of advantage is, is three things. True data ownership, so allowing, like you said, for users to control where their data lives um, and who is allowed to access it. So by decoupling the application uh, logic from the content, users are able to control who has access to what. And, and this is what Blockstack is doing similarly as well with the Blockstack app you can connect a data source. Um, it could be a cloud source like Google Drive or Dropbox, or it could be IPFS and, and uh, content that you host there. And what Blockstack allows you to do is when you serve, let's say your profile or your avatar, you're serving it from your own Dropbox. And when users view your avatar through the Blockstack app, they're going to hit your Dropbox uh, server. And when you run out of space there, it might get offloaded to your IPFS node. But the point is, is that you can turn off that access whenever you want. And the application that your uh, the end users are running that pulls in your profile data are not going to have access to your avatar if you cut off that permission from your Dropbox. Is that a clear way of explaining that? Um, yeah, essentially. A Dropbox is like a good metaphor of like a piece of web available data that you still have control over uh, who accesses uh, what data. And it's also, um, it would also be really interesting to see, for example, how um, you can do something like this without also cloud uh, storage, right? Right, and I, and, and I think with Blockstack, they're trying to, much like, you know, solid, conform to the existing web to ideology or at least like to make it familiar to customers so that you can run a web app that could be hitting Google Drive or Dropbox or IPFS or SIA. They have SIA as an integration as well. 
and the end user shouldn't be able to tell the difference, but it's not controlled by the Facebook or whoever. Right. Um, so it's a, it's a cool, you know, how they're different. They're approaching it from different angles, but trying to solve kind of the same problem. But what's different is Solid is is looking at this. Um, well, it's actually not different in this sense of, of modular design um, because Blockstack also is able to avoid the vendor lock-in that these companies and the monolithic tech companies have made their entire businesses on. Because the users control their data, they can seamlessly switch between apps and personal data storage servers without losing any of their social connections uh, or any of the data that they built up in their Twitters or their, you know, or their decentralized blogs or whatever. Um, so they're solving similar problems there. And, and the other benefit is for developers who are able to create new apps and new user experiences and innovate rapidly without having to worry about where they're going to bootstrap their, their, their user network. If they create a better user experience, then users will be able to, to enjoy that without huge migration costs. Um, so this is exactly in line with uh, what blockchain technology and cryptocurrencies are meant to bring to the traditional web. Um, but it doesn't sound like they're actually using blockchains to do it. No, probably not. Um, yeah, I mean, there are basically they are trying to establish a new um, protocol, essentially. Um, but I, it's not a blockchain protocol, mm-hmm. and it doesn't have this layer of uh, digital scarcity or global consensus around it. Um, if anything, it's probably trying to avoid that by. Um, providing local user control. Um, but it's interesting how it's definitely completely aligned with the philosophy of blockchain. Yeah, the, the more the merrier in my view. Um, yeah. I think we got to come at this at all angles because we just don't know which models will work. In right, the right. And, um, it, and it's clear that you can't just put all of your uh, personally identifying information on public Ethereum. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's definitely clear. Uh, in fact, you know, I, I was reading recently about how uh, people are having such trouble running full nodes that it's, it's like one, I think the comment was, I've never run an application that uh, taxed a 7200 RPM hard drive like Ethereum full node operation does. Yeah. And it's, it, it, clearly this is getting out of hand. I'm, I'm actually, I had this, cra- this uh, terrible feeling in the pit of my stomach that one day in the near future the ethereum project i would wake up and the protocol would be locked and something would have happened and everything would be paused because it just stopped working for some reason mm-hmm. um <laughs> and I, I i don't know if that's gonna happen but but things those kinds of comments put strike a lot of fear in, in my soul so uh, i'm i'm we, we need to get on the scalability casper come on a more, um, I think, um, something that people have already experienced is the fact that um, their computer and their hardware can never catch up. So you can't participate um, with a full node because you never actually uh, catch up with the current state of the blockchain. And the reason is essentially that um, the amount of network traffic coming in that requires being written to um, hopefully your solid state drive on your computer 
um, is sufficiently large enough that either your network capacity is maxed out so you don't get the full information fast enough to ever catch up with the head of the blockchain, or your computer physically can't write to memory fast enough to record the blocks with the amount of data coming in through your network. So these are two things to keep in mind and two things that I've personally experienced by not paying enough for cloud resources. <laughs> and yeah. yes, it's it, it gets to be probably like, I don't know, I would say about $200 a year I've seen on rough estimates. I haven't kept my cloud resource live for a full year because I haven't needed it per se. Um, but yeah, there it's definitely tough. And it's kind of weird if you could only run uh, a full node within a data center. That would That's actually the main criticism of EOS. You'd basically need a data center to be able to meet the specs for running one of their nodes, which is why there's only 21. Right. And we don't even have to get into the recent controversy of their uh, collusion uh, everybody's talking about that, but but it's clear now, and it happened way f sooner than I think people might have imagined that EOS block producers are colluding with Huobi in China uh, to get better outcomes for themselves. And Vitalik's point about this was, uh, yeah, if yeah, you of course <laughs> of course they would. I mean, it's of money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's I like... mean, you give and and his point was. His, his, he actually sees it as a, a, an inherent problem with on-chain voting um, where people with, people vote for people if you have give the opportunity for stakeholders to vote for changes to the monetary supply, you're going to get perverse incentives and collusion and and that's what the off-chain governance model of ethereum and, and Bitcoin, afford is that you have not just the miners and, and users and token holders who are uh, trying to get the most for their stake. You also have the core developers who control, you know, really the roadmap, right? And and that third party really helps balance the, um, the, the powers. Yeah, there's actually a really good episode of the Bitcoin podcast when uh, they interview Hasib about his article um, entitled why blockchains are not democracies and essentially it says that um, this type of technological development is difficult enough to do um, simply by making a consensus decision by a small group of engineers which by the way is also how Bitcoin core uh, decisions <laughs> are made um, but introducing a political aspect to it doesn't necessarily improve either fairness or outcome. Um, Technology is hard and everything has sacrifices. And basically having a uh, politics around it, especially a politics that's weighted directly to how much money you have, uh, would definitely create some perverse incentives. And yeah, there's definitely blockchain projects that I kind of overlooked just because of the um, on-chain governance or, um, or in the opposite direction, lack of independence from the holding company or uh, the corporation that's running it and the actual blockchain itself, <clears throat> Ripple. <laughs> and, and yeah, I mean, I, you know, ultimately, I, I think the... It comes back to the scale, the 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 trilemma, right? In blockchains, the crypto trilemma, and it's the 
scalability, security, and decentralization. Those are, you can pick two of those. And in the first or second era of crypto, you had companies like Ripple and, and, and Masternodes and all these, you know, proof of authority systems and, and so on that are trying to solve the scalability problem by sacrificing decentralization uh, or decentralization. And you've now seen in this era of crypto the recognition that no, actually, if you are going to get scalability by sacrificing centralization, then you need to have a fallback. And that fallback would be layer one Ethereum security, right? And I like the approach that the Ethereum Foundation is taken, taking by making security the number one priority and, and trying to um, not add any fluff on that. Because if you look at a system like Tezos, which is delegated proof of stake and suffers from potentially the collusion problems that we are talking about here, um, they don't have a fallback of a core development team that can, you know, pump out and, and collect, you know, work with the mining miners and all this stuff. No, it has to go through a voting process with users who may be underinformed about the appropriate way to proceed in an urgent situation, right? And so I actually like the basic approach that uh, for governance that Ethereum takes because you can outsource those more complicated governance mechanisms to side chains and other things and let users choose how they want to um, trade off between scalability, security, and, and uh, uh, decentralization, but give them a backup. Give them that backup in the case of a dispute so they can go back to that base layer. Right. And in the end, um, I believe blockchains are a perfect way in which you could uh, vote with your pocketbook, not necessarily on on on-chain governance, but in your decision to participate or not within the network itself. And in the end, I think usage is the ultimate vote of approval. If developers are working and using a protocol, then they agree with the decisions that have been made in running and operating it. Um, which is why forks are dangerous, right? If you split a network, then its value uh, fragments as well. And um, that threat is democratic and it is a representation of the real hardcore beliefs of its users, yet it can't be sold for cheap on a secondary market like Mm. happened to EOS. Right, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll see how that develops. So moving on to MetaMask, who is obviously a favorite of ours and, and pretty much everyone in the community, uh, finally works with Ledger. They've got an integration now. My, my pet peeve with MetaMask to date has been, you know, that I can't use my hardware wallet and I have to keep money on uh, effectively in my browser. Um, and so that's limited the, the amount of funds that I would ever put into a MetaMask wallet. Um, but wow, we can we can sign transactions, sign messages uh, to to get into sites like CryptoKitties. You can view your ledger account balance um, or token balance, you know, of ETH, you know, uh, uh, ETH tokens, and your private keys are safe. Pretty cool. Yeah, agreed. And I feel like um, going into crypto was an education in cybersecurity in and of itself. And my whole like journey essentially through MetaMask to hardware wallets to more secured um, and better backed up uh, processes that I won't get into essentially 
showed my own progression and understanding of cybersecurity and how to take uh, how to take precautions on the internet, right? And I think uh, most people either started with my Ether wallet and then progressed to MetaMask or something in that direction. Um, if they didn't move to MetaMask directly. And I feel like the community did do a pretty good job educating people in the importance of uh, using hardware wallets. So um, the need for this and the need for hardware wallets is really well illustrated by the progression of my crypto, uh, the developers of which broke off of my Ether wallet. A while ago and it's just like the perfect example of why the move towards hardware wallets is necessary and beneficial towards for users um, so my ether wallet had several hacks but a more recent one specifically on um, I think it was DNS hosting servers so when you would mm -hmm. type in my ether wallet if you hit a specific server I think it was in Turkey don't know the specifics off the top of my head, but you would hit the server that would redirect you to my Ether wallet, and there, it would it was exactly the same. They've copy and pasted the UI, except when you actually entered your private keys or your mnemonic into the website, it also forwarded this information to an attacker. And you had to be really attentive to notice that um, the lock icon next to um, uh, in your browser where you have the URL wasn't there. It's because they didn't have the SSL certificate. But there were hundreds of millions of uh, dollars worth of Ether that were stolen in a simple way. And the reason that this happened is because they lost access to their private keys or their mnemonics by putting it on the internet. MetaMask is one abstraction away because they have a built-in browser application which honestly it can be simulated um, in a website but it's really hard to fake a browser application or at least manipulate or compromise a browser so severely that you could actually change the functioning of a browser app now i personally use uh, my crypto which has a desktop app and this is another layer above that in which you have a desktop app that technically is running a sandbox uh, Chrome uh, browser, but the thing is is that in order for a hacker to compromise that, they would actually have to compromise your desktop. So these levels of abstraction of increased security permitting you to um, use hardware wallets while interacting with an interface that you trust shows the kind of uh, learning curve that has been pushed onto crypto users um, I don't want to think about the usability or the user interface implications of something like this, but uh, in terms of security, that's currently what's necessary. In fact, I think the cool thing about integrating Ledger and MetaMask is that it simplifies the, us the usability, I think, and uh, actually improves it, it, it improves the security because you don't have to now worry about did I type my private key wrong or do I have to... How, how, you know, how, where am I storing my private key so that it's easy to access so I can put it into, uh, I guess not my, MetaMask, you wouldn't have that problem of, of my crypto. But does, does the desktop app uh, for my crypto allow you to use Ledger? Yes, it does. 
And I mean, the one issue that I do have in terms of the security of uh, MetaMask was that you can actually have seed recovery phrases. Um, your browser could be like, oh, we forgot your password. What's your secret phrase again? And it's not actually um, the uh, browser app. It might just show up or be emulated in the browser itself. Right, so you could have a fake MetaMask web page. Right, um, naturally, you could you could have somebody you could uh, fish them for effectively downloading a fake Chrome extension. Right, and and also a really easy way to manipulate users isn't necessarily to take their private keys, but it is to change what people sign. Right, if you have a website, a DAP, for example, and you basically lead a uh, customer on to a certain outcome as a uh, end result of what they're doing, you can trick people into signing messages or transactions that they don't fully understand. So the new EIP um, 712, uh, it's not necessarily new, it's been around, but it's now being implemented uh, in MetaMask. It shows you in better detail what you're signing. And the benefit of this is you can clearly see within the MetaMask app who you're sending money to, the content, the value. And when you have a more detailed uh, view of what's actually going into a transaction, you know what you're signing. And mm -hmm. this is kind of like if you don't craft your own transactions by writing out the code and typing in your own address uh, as a destination, most people don't. They just assume that the DAP that they use correctly formatted uh, the transaction for you. Um, now you could verify that it is correctly written out in MetaMask, which I think is a, it's a great user. Um, it helps build confidence uh, as well. Totally. It's also harder. I harder to get around right um i've definitely you know experienced that fear or that uncertainty when a metamask transaction pops up and you just see this you know fee and and you see this transaction data it's going to some address you can't recognize it's got some data assigned to it that you can't recognize and you're just expected to hit okay you know you don't know who's coming into the middle of that and um, right. faking that transaction and and recently you know, a great point was made by somebody, I, I can't remember who, um, who said, you know, 99% of the dApps that they've tried have a centralized point of failure. And Augur is one of the only examples of, of an app that doesn't. Yeah, almost to a fault in that they have, you can use their service without using their service. Um, yeah, it's, it's fairly interesting. Um, I wonder why Augur is the only one. Oh, it's because you're hosting yeah. your own node. Okay, Cause, so cause I, have, I realized why. Yeah, so it, you actually you have, have to, to. You have to yeah. download. Yeah, you have to download a, an application um, for your desktop to run. Right, it. and then you but, have to actually select what node you point to. Right. And I bet like ninety percent of people are just like, oh, let me go on. Um, Infer uh, Infura, Infura is set by default. Yeah, and it's exactly. it's, caused, it's caused some problems uh, when I was using it early on. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it's obviously a huge barrier for users to have to download an application, download, you know, the, the transactions, even, even though you do, you have to sync a node, you, you can't even use Augur for maybe 20 or 30 minutes, um, right. while you're syncing. 
Yeah. And it doesn't have to download the whole Ethereum blockchain, but it's, it's selecting, you know, Augur related transactions, but it still takes quite a while. Uh, and obviously that's not great. Foam protocol, um, which recently launched on mainnet, they have a website, right? Foam.space. And you can go there and you can see the map and you can run transactions and it'll present you a MetaMask uh, transaction. But who, who are you trusting? Right. There's somebody you're trusting to form that transaction properly, right? right? Yeah, yeah. And so, the idea that people audit their own smart contracts before interacting with them or they check the validity of a transaction before sending it is unrealistic. Like, even if here, I could, I won't. <laughs> I think the, the saving grace in all this is that Yes, there are centralized points of failure for many of these consumer applications that are that are running on blockchain um, for critical business logic. But here's the thing is that anyone can create a front end application to prove that it's being done right. And so if foam gets hacked and they're injecting improper transactions that are not getting picked up by the reg by the registry or are getting assigned to a different owner, the users are going to figure that out pretty quickly because there's going to be competing web applications that show the foam map, right? And there's going to be applications that rely on the foam map. So you're going to be able to verify when you place a point of interest on the map near your home that it's going to show up in these five different applications that are all referencing that distributed ledger of who, you know, what are the points of interest on the map. So even if foam.space is hacked and it's showing a fake map that's telling you that you're adding points of interest and challenging and voting and doing all this great stuff, but you're not actually doing it and it's siphoning your money from MetaMask, well, you'll find out pretty quickly because there will be an entire ecosystem of tools that will show you that your, your stuff didn't happen the way you expected. Agreed. Yeah. It's... Um still not the exact security model that we've always hoped for right um, provable um, security but sometimes you kind of do need this kind of competitive or um, self-regulating type of security and, temporarily and, it's the best we can do <laughs> so yeah clearly metamask and, and eip 712 improves the usability we like this. It's it's a great development, and obviously we want more decentralization. But we'll have to deal with 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 the current status quo as as long as uh, as we need to. But I, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I think it's time to wrap up. Um, we've we've covered a lot. Any anything else that we need to add here, Lucian? Nope. Great talking to you. See you next week. And thanks to the Bitcoin Podcast Network for publishing this episode of Dose of Ether. We'd like to thank our audience. Thanks for joining us. Share with your friends. 